0: Alright, as we come back together, why don't you grab your Bible or access your app and turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. If you are needing a Bible, there is a black hardcover in one of the seats in front of you. It looks just like this. And uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers, and you can find James chapter 5 on page 1013. Of the Bibles provided. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, we would uh, love for you to take this one and use it as your own. So we are in James chapter 5 this morning. We are nearing the end of the book of James, just uh, three, four more weeks after this. And uh, you don't believe me, but it's happening. This one's not even that long, guys. Remember we did Isaiah, we did all these big books. This is a short one. We are in James chapter 5, and this morning we're going to take a look at verses 1 through 6. Remember, um, in this series we've entitled it 24-7, talking about real faith in real life. And many of you were excited that we were doing James in the first place, and lots of you have had some really good feedback about uh, our sermons and Working our way through this book so far. So, we're really glad for that. James is really practical, and uh, we are excited to get going into what one commentator called the harshest rhetoric of the whole book. Not only that, a second commentator said the harshest of proclamations in the entire book. So, lucky you, you showed up this morning. James chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. I'll read those aloud, you follow along, and then we'll get started. James chapter 5, starting in verse 1. "'Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days.'" We'll see what in the world we're doing here in James chapter 5. Father, we thank you, we thank for this passage, and we pray for insight and application. We pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we might see the wonderful things that you have for us in your word. We thank you uh, for new life this morning as, as Nova is here. We pray, um, Lord, for all the the little babies and their moms and dads. Um, we pray for those that have come and those that are coming, that you would be with them. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would give us what we need from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you heard the one about the man who hoards money all his life and then begs God to allow him to bring something with him into the afterlife? Obviously, this is apocryphal. God says he can bring whatever he can fit into just one suitcase. Thinking the best thing to take would be gold bricks, the man buys a dozen, loads them into a suitcase, and arrives in heaven. As he brings the gold bricks through the pearly gates, Peter asks him, "Um, I was wondering, of all the things in the world you could bring in your suitcase, why would you bring pavement? (laughs) that's, uh, That's one of those where you don't know whether to laugh or cry. Uh, And that's basically how I felt all week studying this passage. Um, It is a rough one, as we just read. And uh, honestly, I would love to pair next week's sermon with this one today, but we'll get there next week. So for those of you, we've got like 40 minutes here. For those of you who are like, oh my goodness, how are we going to do six verses of this for 40 minutes? Um, Have no fear. But... Next week, next week, the things are starting to look up, okay? Uh, Just as a preparation. As I said, this is some of the harshest rhetoric in the whole letter. And and many of us love the book of James for its practicality, but if we're to go and read it carefully, James is a harsh letter. James pulls no punches in several places in the letter, and you kind of wish he would balance it out, you know, like a little bit of nuance. Um, But we've talked about James... Uh, the author of this letter uh, being the, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, the um, son of Joseph and Mary. And uh, we, we know that James was not a believer in his brother um, while his brother was doing his ministry. But James came to believe in his brother Jesus um, after the resurrection. And we know from the book of Acts that James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And Pastor Ron has made it a point that as we've gone through this letter, that we want to point out how closely James adheres to Brother Jesus's, especially Sermon on the Mount, but his teaching in general. Oftentimes they're not quotes, um, but they sound a lot, they look a lot, they feel a lot, they smell a lot, like Jesus's statements. And we'll see that even today. And, and it is, just in case you, you haven't read Jesus in a while, um, Jesus also could be harsh, when the uh, context demanded it, when Jesus told people to pluck out their eyeballs and cut off their hands, um, when Jesus uh, told people about the fires of hell. Um, and so let's remember that as we talk, and let's see what James has to say to us this morning. Last week, Pastor Ron talked about knowing the will of the Lord, submitting our lives to God's will rather than trying to drag God's will into our plans, And this passage kind of comes right on the heels of that and kind of keeps some of the same themes. So if you'll look at verses 1 through 6, I think what we're going to see in these six verses is that rich people that hoard their ill-gotten wealth for luxurious living at the expense of the poor will experience God's wrath. That is the thrust of this passage that rich people that hoard their ill-gotten wealth for luxurious living at the expense of the poor will experience God's wrath. And that's important for us to note for a lot of reasons. We are um, in possibly the wealthiest county in the wealthiest country on the face of the earth. We are surrounded by creature comforts. We are uh, the the capital of the world for uh, cosmetic surgery we are in a place where we have beautiful mountains uh, around us a beautiful coastline to go to and we're surrounded by the comforts uh, that wealth can bring and so this is a message that we need to heed and it is also a message that we need to heed because many of us struggle to make it in this county Um, you might have noticed things cost a lot here a little bit Okay. Um, And and that also plays into the application of this text. So look at point number one in your notes. Point number one in your notes summarizes verses one through three, where James says that the very treasure that brought the rich pleasure is already wasting away and will be the death of them. The very treasure that brought the rich pleasure is already wasting away and will be the death of them. Ironic statement that James tells the rich that their riches will kill them. Not only that, but their very riches will be witnesses against them in the court of God's law. So look again at verse one what what James says to these rich. Come now. It's a way of getting their attention. Listen up, you rich. Which is almost you can almost hear the sneer when he says it, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. (laughs) Um, Many scholars think that James is addressing rich Christians. And if you'll flip back in your Bible and just look across the page, we've already seen James address riches. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1, for example. We have the lowly brother and the rich in verse 10. And the reminder to the rich is that like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun's going to scorch him with its heat, and the rich man will fade away. That's that's great. Fantastic. Chapter 2, we, if you remember, talked about partiality and prejudice against those who were poor in the congregation and those who were rich. The rich got treated well. The rich got the best seats. And the poor kind of got thrown in the back because they had nothing to offer. We, we hear a little bit through the rest of the letter about what it would look like to be one who has nothing and is not helped by those who call themselves Christians. And then even last week, we saw about merchants who were talking about trade and profit. And these are the, the wealthier, maybe the upper middle class to the wealthy and then we get to chapter 5. And the question is, is James talking to rich Christians in the churches he's writing to? Or is James talking to rich unbelievers? And if James is talking to rich unbelievers, does he really expect them to read his letter? And if he doesn't, then why is it addressed to them? Because it is actually directed right at them, right? Come now, you rich. He's telling them what to do. You, sh- you ought to weep and howl. Well, as I studied the passage and as I looked at it, I think that in these six verses, um, and there's room for disagreement here, but I would tend to think that, that James has now shifted to talking about wealthy unbelievers that are persecuting and oppressing uh, poorer believers in the churches that James is writing to, okay? Um, there are plenty of opinions on the other side, and I think there's some good points to be made, but, but as I approach the text, that's what that's the approach I'm taking is that these are rich Unbelievers, And you can see that in the way that James sounds like an Old Testament prophet in condemning them. There's not a lot of hope in these six verses. And there's not really an explicit call for repentance either. Obviously there is place for repentance when called out by prophets. But there's not even a request or a call from James that they repent. He is just telling them what is coming. So you can see that, that as James testifies against these rich that they are to weep and to howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And that's where I got the title for today's message, Lifestyles of the Rich and Miserable. And you can see that this is what James desires for them, to weep and to howl. Weep is, is a strong word for crying. It is not the sniffles, try to keep it in. This is a loud crying, an out loud type of sobbing. This is what he recommends the rich people do. You know what you should do, rich people? You should begin to weep. Why would I do that? Well, not only that, rich people, but you ought to howl. And that word is not like become a werewolf and howl at the full moon. What he's telling them to do is to wail, to make lament. Uh, Another uh, definition is to making a loud and inarticulate cry. Now, the word can be used for a positive one, for like jubilation, okay, like celebration, but most often in the Old Testament, it's used as for terror. When you are so incredibly terrified that the only response is to scream. This is what James tells them to do. What could be coming that would make them want to do this? The miseries. That are coming upon you. Notice, there does not seem to be much of an option. James is just telling them, here's what's going to happen. The miseries that are coming upon you. One uh, translation says, burst into weeping, howling with grief. Understand the way that this is used. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Zechariah, they all use this word in connection with coming judgment on the wicked. This is the proper response for God's wrath. That word for miseries could be trials, wretchedness, distress, trouble. James promises these rich that these are coming upon you. Now before we go any further, we need to be careful here. There's two dangers. One danger for us is to kind of balance this with saying, well... But no, riches aren't bad, which is actually true. But when, when we're taught to preach, we're taught to preach the tone of the text. The tone of the text is not balanced. The tone of the text is, is not trying to help people along. The tone of this text is, you rich people are going to die, your money's going to eat you, the flames will lick at your feet, and you're going to be destroyed. Okay, why why do that? Well, the point here is to really emphasize, to emphasize what is going on. Jesus used this technique sometimes as well, using almost an exaggeration to make sure that he focused the mind of his listeners because we hear things all the time and they go in one ear and out the other and we don't hear the harshness of them sometimes unless something is camped upon. And that is what James is doing here. So let's just make sure that we understand that Scripture interprets Scripture and we have a, a feast of other uh books and letters in the Bible that that don't they don't say that every rich person is going to hell. They don't say that riches and wealth in themselves are wrong. The Apostle Paul would tell Timothy what to tell the rich people in his church, assuming there were rich people, there were poor people, there were middle class people. But here, what is going on is that James is saying the rich people in general have earned themselves the right to begin to weep and to howl. Why is that? Look at verse two. The riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten. Now, how can riches rot? Is this like paper money left in a really humid place and it's not going to last long? Is, is it, is it just their wealth in general? Is it their possessions? Is it, um, coin? Well, the problem with that, as we'll see in verses two and three, is that gold and silver don't actually rust. Um, gold is, is an incredible metal, and silver, it's really hard for silver to corrode. So, James is not, not worried here. Okay, about being scientifically accurate. What he is trying to get across is that the very things that they have stored up, their riches and their garments, which we found out in chapter 2 is one of the things that defines a rich person, the luxurious clothing that they wear, the high quality of the Armani suit, right? all of the things that were in their closets. James is saying all that stuff that that says you are rich and you are wealthy is already... Currently, now, in this life, corroding, rotting, moth-eating, it is transitory, it is temporary, and it's already becoming unusable. Now, we know this is the case. Pull out your phone. How many of you are ready for a new one? Anybody looking for a new one? It's not working very well? <laughs> okay, man, and what is it, like maybe 18 months old? Woo! My goodness. Uh, how many of you um, how many of you remember in times past, eons ago, when you could park a car in your garage? Oh, that's what it's for? Now, this is something that, that we know, because we go to look in our attic, we go to look in our garage, we go to look in that box on the bottom of the pile, somewhere behind a closed door in a closet, and we go, we still have this? Why do we have this? It's falling apart, it doesn't work. And if we didn't have mothballs all of the things would be eaten by moths, right? So we're familiar with this. We know that this is the case. But what James wants to hammer home is that they have so much unused and unnecessary stuff that even now it's already become unusable. And what that does is it indicates the wasteful nature of these rich people. They have stuff because they want stuff, not because they need stuff. And they have stuff because they can get this stuff. And the implication is they don't care about those who can't get this stuff. The implication here is that the rich have ignored the poor. Now, we live in a country where uh, inequality is on the rise. And we, we're, we're going to hear a lot more about this as we enter into campaign season. Um, and whether or not we agree on the solutions, what the statistics tell us, is undeniable is that the rich are becoming richer and it's really, really extra hard for those on the bottom. And this has become the case in in all cultures everywhere through all times. We have been fairly immune to it because of, for whatever reason, God's blessing on our country. But yet this is still the case. In verse 3, James continues to go after the rich and he says, your gold and silver have corroded. Well, that's impossible. But one of the Uh, scholars that I was reading this week said it's scientifically impossible, but it's proverbially, proverbially powerful. That what he's going for is he's going for the rhetorical effect of saying something that is impossible. It's actually happening to your wealth. Your gold and your silver have corroded. Not only that, the very fact of their corrosion will be evidence against you. It's almost like At the judgment seat of God, that God's gonna call forth witnesses, and some of the witnesses are gonna be little gold bars and silver bars. (laughs) Okay? Coming up, taking the oath, right? And they're corroded, and they're, they're, they're witnessing against their owners, and speaking of their wealth that was used for themselves. Not only that, but they will, the metaphor changes, they will eat your flesh like fire. Well, that's not very nice. What James is doing is he's appropriating Ezekiel's words from Ezekiel chapter 7. Speaking of um, those who were wealthy and who had wasted their wealth. They cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it. For it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. The the wording that James is borrowing from Ezekiel is meant to remind the rich that the very thing they put their trust in is the very thing that will be their undoing. The very thing that they long to hold in their hands, to put in the bank, to have in the safe, is going to come back against them. This is a warning for us to consider how we think about riches and wealth. And then the main point of this part of the first three verses, James ends with, You have laid up treasure in the last days. And this is borrowing from Brother Jesus' words about laying up treasure from Matthew 6. Jesus has no problem with us laying up treasure. In fact, Jesus commands us to lay up treasure. But what he commands us to do is to make a wise investment, a long-term investment, and to lay up treasure where? In heaven. Well, why not lay up treasure on earth? Moths. Rust. Okay? James is borrowing these ideas from Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount. You can see that later if you want to look at Matthew 6, starting in verse 19 and onward. Jesus talks about money. He talks about anxiety and worry and trust. That's a good place to counter what was wrong with these rich people. And so the, the accusation is that you've laid up treasure in the last days. What James wants to tell these people is that they've laid up treasure, and the implication is on earth, in the last days. Now why is that like a zinger? Well, because according to the Apostle Peter, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles and the believers in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, we have entered the last days. Now, we like to use last days or end times to refer to all the charts and all the prophetic stuff that we really get intrigued about. Um, but actually, we've been in the last days for almost 2,000 years. And we're not going to have time to do an entire theology of the last days. But throughout the New Testament, the understanding is that once Jesus came, accomplished what he came to do, which is take our sins on himself on the cross and then rise from the dead, conquering Satan's sin and death and then sending his Holy Spirit to empower the new church that we have entered the last days. And what that means is that we are ready. We're waiting We're waiting for Jesus to come and consummate the kingdom, to end this part of history and to usher in the kingdom. And since that is the case, the implication is we ought to live with an urgency that it is the last days. James says these rich have not even considered that it's the last days. Who cares? Live it up now. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die He who dies with the most toys wins, etc., etc., etc. What James is doing is exposing the hearts of these rich people. They have given themselves over to temporary earthly wealth. I mean, maybe, maybe they'll be wealthy for several decades. And what James and what Jesus want us to see is that you can handle not being so wealthy for several decades if you see the future and your infinite wealth for eternity. What a stupid investment. What a moronic investment to make sure that you're healthy and wealthy and supported for a few decades when eternity is just over the horizon in these last days. And so the takeaway is that we make a better investment. We look at the return and we look at the returns and we say which one should I invest in? Should I invest in the un, the un, uh the not not really known uh wealth of the next few decades or should I primarily be about the promised return on investment in the kingdom of God? Now don't hear me say that you shouldn't wisely save because the same Bible that we're reading tells us that it is important to provide for those who are in our care and to give generously and to save well. However, that can very easily turn into a miserliness, right? That's what turned Scrooge into Scrooge, okay? Ebenezer Scrooge is a fantastic picture of one who was saved out of this, if you want to say that, in the the Christmas carol, because he he just held on to what he deserved and what he earned, and it was his. And his wealth was corroded. Also, it seems that, and we'll see this in the second half as well, but it seems that um, what is happening is that James is using the idea of their wealth and their riches coming up as evidence in this court scene. Because what can the wealthy do? Even in our world, even here in America... If you have wealth, you can hire a better lawyer who can get you out of more time in prison. If you're poor, you can't afford a lawyer like that. And so you probably get a public defender who may get you out or may not, but it's probably not going to get you out. It is verified that the wealthy spend less time in prison for the same or similar offenses that poorer people commit. This is unjust, and it was the same thing in, in the day of James. The wealthy could use their wealth possibly to bribe, possibly to influence. Maybe they owned the judge's land and could put a little bit of pressure. Whatever the case is, it seems that James is flipping this on its head, saying the wealth that gets you in court now and gets you good decisions is going to come against you in the final decision, and it will be against you. Craig Blomberg says this in his commentary in the book of James. Unused wealth does the kingdom no good and condemns those who refuse to use it for God. Unused wealth does the kingdom no good and condemns those who refuse to use it for God. So there's applications all over the place here, but in your notes, the primary application I want to take from verses one through three is this. We all, you're like, I'm not rich. Doesn't matter. Hold on. Time out. We all need to be more skeptical of the good that more money can do for our lives. We all need to be more skeptical of the good that more money can do for our lives. I feel this temptation all the time. If I get a 5% raise next year, then I can take care of this. If I just made a little bit more money, then I could do that. You know what would fix my problems? A little bit more money. And you know what would fix the problems I got after that? Probably a little bit more money. And you know what would fix the... Oh, wait a second. Isn't that how it goes? Isn't that why people get trapped in buying lottery tickets? Um, It's it's a horrible thing um, for those who don't understand what they are doing. um, And buying lottery tickets, hoping that the next thing will help them get over the hump. Short-circuiting the way that God has given us to work and sometimes to ask for help. So we should all be more skeptical of the good that more money can do for our lives. Perhaps there are other things in this world and in our lives, both physical, material, and spiritual, that are better resources than just a little bit more money. All right, point number two, as we move into the second half. Point number two, taking advantage of the poor for personal indulgence does not go unheard and will not go unpunished. Taking advantage of the poor for personal indulgence does not go unheard and will not go unpunished. I think this is hard for us to see in America. For the land of the free, the home of the brave, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Um, we have lots of, of great stories like that. And so sometimes the poor are invisible to us. Or maybe worse, the poor are a nuisance to us. Maybe you've noticed um, the rise in homelessness in our state, in our region the last few years? This is an uncomfortable subject. And I'm not going to give a prescription, a political prescription today. But I do want to give some spiritual advice that might go a long way in helping us think or rethink our understanding of who is poor and our treatment of them. And then the main thrust here is is actually that God cares about how the rich treat the poor. I debated while prepping this week, I, I went through my mind all the time, things I've said before, you know, do you have two cars? Then you're rich. You, know, you live in America, you're rich. And that certainly is the case if we compare ourselves to other nations, and there's probably a place for that. But the the reality is that there's there's people in this room who are struggling to make ends meet. And it doesn't matter if if they have a bunch of things that other people in other countries don't have. It's that in their context right now, that is a real trial in people's lives. There are poor people among us. And if they have a smartphone, that is not licensed for us to dismiss them. We ought to be careful when we think about this subject. In verse 4, James moves on and he says, Behold, behold. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The rich, described here, are unjust employers. They're abusing their authority. And in the first century in the Roman world, this was really, really evident, because inequality was on the rise in the first century. Much of the land in the Roman world was scooped up by wealthy landowners. Farmers and other workers often had to hire themselves out to these landowners, totally putting themselves at the mercy of the landowner. Now, as James, as James approaches this, as he's done throughout the book, he is leaning hard on his upbringing as a Jewish person, writing to probably mainly Jewish churches on the Old Testament. And we've already seen this in other passages, but Leviticus 19 seems to be the key passage that James continues to go back to. Leviticus 19.13 told the Jewish people this, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. Notice how oppression and robbing are equated there. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. I mean, this It doesn't get more practical than that. If I hire Ben to come over to my house and work, I need to give him what he has earned. And the purpose of that, especially in this day, is that there was not easy credit. Okay? There was not access to easy credit, especially for the poor. So the the hard money that they had was what they had. And we talk about living paycheck to paycheck. A lot of these workers lived day by day whether or not their employers would give them the money. If they didn't get paid at the end of the day, often their family did not eat. So God had set it up in the Jewish mind that this was just not okay. This was never okay. In Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15, God told the Israelites this, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or... Or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. That would be someone similar to an immigrant. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. For he is poor and counts on it. Lest, what's the, what's the threat here? Why do this? Lest he cry against you to Yahweh and you be guilty of sin. This is not just a preference. Well, I only pay workers once a week. No, no, th- this was this person is counting on it. You must give them what they have earned. This is, I think, in the back of james 's mind as he is thinking this through, that these rich, who may or may not be Jewish are probably more gen- they 're probably m- mostly Gentile, but they have done something that is wicked. whether or not they knew the Jewish law, this was the wrong way to treat people. They have kept back the wages, and James personifies the wages as crying out. Okay, hey, all right. I don't know if we're supposed to like view like dollar bills crying out, but it's actually similar to the blood of Abel crying out to God in Genesis chapter three. Did did, did the blood did the blood cells actually cry out to God? I mean, were they like they like okay? Was that was God hearing that? No, no. Of course, but it's a metaphor. The whole point is that that. The, the God is hearing the injustice. God knows of the injustice going on, and that should terrify these wealthy landowners who are abusing their workers. Now you can see that we can get we can really quickly here start to apply this to managers and business owners and bosses. Okay, so I'm coming for you, but hold on. James doesn't just say God hears. But at the end of verse 4, he says, they have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And he actually just transliterates a Hebrew term, Sabaoth. Okay, familiar with um, Martin Luther's um, Mighty Fortress. Sabaoth is a Hebrew term that means armies. So, So here's what James says. James says, you're oppressing them. And you know who hears? You know who hears? The Lord of armies. The general who at the snap of a finger has the armies of heaven on his side. You want to mess with that? You want to mess with the Lord of armies? That's who hears. This is an unveiled threat. There's, There's no like, what does this mean? What James is saying is God's coming for you, and he's got armies at his disposal. Stop messing around. Pay your workers. Don't mistreat them. Don't defraud them. Don't steal from them is essentially what he's saying. Verse 5, James moves on and he says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Here is the problem. The problem is not wealth itself. The problem is what the wealth is used for. Luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Wow. We should not easily dismiss this again. Well, those rich people. We should think about this. Have you ever asked yourself how much is too much? speaking of a little more would help just a little more would help just a little more would help a little bit bigger house a little bit bigger car a little bit nicer is is there ever too much i mean the Ameri- the american dream is no of course not you get what you deserve you get it you grab it you hold on to it so i wonder do we even have the capacity to objectively take stock of our possessions too much we might say what does that mean Maybe that's not even a category in our minds. And that village is a very dangerous place for any of us to be. What are you looking forward to with your next raise, your next job? You students who are going to school partially to be qualified for a job, what are you looking forward to with your first, your second job? Have you ever... Have you ever sat down and considered increasing the percentage that you give away as you get more raises? Or does God only deserve your 10% and the rest is yours? Well, I give 10%. That's a pretty flimsy defense. I'm glad that you give 10% if you give 10%. That's a great place to start. What if you got a raise next year And you considered increasing the percentage you give away, whether it's to this church, to missionaries you support, to good Christian organizations working for good in the world. Or is our only consideration the next thing, the better thing, the bigger thing, the thing you've wanted so long and you totally deserve and will make you happy for maybe a few days? Let's be careful as we think about this. In their book, Happiness, Unlocking the Mysteries of Psychological Wealth, which I have not read, um, the authors claim that happiness comes apart from money or material goods. These are unbelieving secular researchers, psychology professors. The research has shown that though money helps lead, helps people lead more comfortable lives, it doesn't necessarily contribute to the moments in life that bring happiness which tend to come from social interactions and activities, not from accumulating material goods. When you look at the entire world, psychologists said money does matter, but it almost doesn't matter at all for enjoying life. Another study by Belgian psychologists furthered the theory that money cannot buy happiness. In fact, they say it may be just the opposite. The study gave evidence that richer people aren't as capable As poorer people of savoring small pleasures, they've become numb and callous to it. The small pleasures were simple things like a piece of chocolate or the thought of completing a task or even enjoying a hike. I mean, the secular research shows us this, okay? In addition to God's word telling us that it is true. So we've li- you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. The picture is of one of uncaring. Now, it's really important to see that if you have wealth, the, the, the goal of God giving you that wealth is for you to give it away. Because the, because what happens when we accumulate is literally, it's going to kill us. It's going To kill us, James ends verse 5 by saying, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. I love this. Because he uses the word for heart, cardia, where we get cardiac from. Um, But it also can refer to your midsection. (laughs) Okay? Like, it's not necessarily metaphorically your heart. It can be at times. But it can also be both. I like to think it's both. I like to think that James is saying, hey, fatties, you have... (laughs) thats It's not in there, but... You have a problem with your midsection, and that problem stems from the problem in your heart. You have fattened your hearts. And guess what? Look at those last words. In the day of slaughter, which sheep, which calf gets slaughtered first? The fattened calf. Right? So James is saying, you guys are just getting yourselves ready for slaughter. Way to go, the fat and the rich. Lastly, he ends in verse 6 by saying this, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He saves it for last. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, or the innocent. Well, were they really murdering? A lot of times we go, well, this is metaphorical. They probably weren't. First of all, who's to say they weren't murdering? I mean, you could gobble up more land. You'd have a lot less people to deal with. That'd be great. Secondly, what happens when people can't eat? They die. What happens in a world when there's no antibiotics? They die. Quickly. Soon. By withholding wages, there is actually murder taking place. In in, in a Jewish document in between the Old and New Testament, uh, it says this, To take away a neighbor's living is to commit murder. This ought to be taken to heart by all of you who manage people, who are bosses, who have people working under you. Think this through. What are you doing when you're paying your workers? Think about that carefully. Now, it's also likely, like we said before, that the rich took the poor to court and abused them because they had the riches that the, the poor people did not So that that word of condemnation may actually refer to the rich people taking poor people to court, and because the poor people have no resources, the rich people win every time. And perhaps it's throwing them in a debtor's prison, an awful idea that has been the case for centuries and centuries. You're going to be in prison until you pay off your debt. Well, if you're in prison, you can't work to pay off your debt. So who's working to pay off your debt? Your wife, your kids, other family. So you're condemning the extended family? to this as well? Now, you might have come through this sermon and be like, none of this applies to me. I mean, I'm a believer. I don't have very much. So, thanks. Nice. Can we get to next week? <laughs> Notice the last phrase. He does not resist you. He does not resist you. What is the position of the Christian being abused, being condemned? The position of the Christian is totally counter-cultural. It is the path of non-resistance. This is not to say that we don't use our rights. The Apostle Paul demonstrates for us that we use our rights. We can go to court. We can appeal. We can do these things. But the response is never revenge. The response is not rebellion. Rise up against the landowners. Torch their fields. Kidnap their children and hold them for ransom. That's not the idea here. The idea is that if we must, and perhaps our witness requires it, we will accept losses without ruining our witness for money. That's a hard thing to hear. That's a hard thing to hear. We want to fight fire with fire. We want to get back at them. The kingdom way is non-resistance. The kingdom way is Jesus standing falsely accused before his accusers. It's not very American. And I'm not saying it's easy to figure out how this works, but this is the idea of the righteous one who does not resist Now, we have more resources given to us next week in being patient and in prayer. But for now, the idea here is that we will sometimes suffer, but we have the Lord of hosts on our side. And if we really believe in the supernatural nature of our religion, if we really believe that Judgment Day is coming, if we really believe that people need to be saved from wrath, then we will really understand that in the end, No one's going to get away with anything. God is a good judge. Abraham says in in Genesis, will not the judge of the earth do right? Yes, he will. He will do right. We can trust God to make things right even if he doesn't do it in our lifetime. Because this is not all there is. There's more to come. So, application. Application. This might sound really um, simple, and I think it is, but I don't think it's simplistic. Hard, honest work in return for pay is a good thing. Hard, honest work for pay is a good thing. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's a spiritual thing. Because we know from the New Testament that we're working for God. Now, that also has a corollary. If you're a boss, if you're cutting checks, if you're managing a payroll then you need to compensate those who are giving you hard, honest work. And as a Christian, you need to care more than just about how little you can pay them to bring in more profits. As a Christian manager or boss, you need to care for your workers and their families. That is absolutely obvious in this passage. To not do so is to be on the side of the rich who are condemned over and over again. Another application is that this is God's judgment and condemnation on false teachers, particularly those who preach the prosperity gospel. Because what the prosperity gospel offers is exactly what is condemned in this passage. For those preachers uh, like Todd White and Benny Hinn and Joel Osteen, for these guys that promise that you're good enough and you, you're gonna be wealthy and talk to your wallet and tell it to be full. Uh, they're full of things that are evil and wicked and God will condemn them for their false teaching. To tell someone who is poor, if you just have enough, enough faith, you'll be rich, is to absolutely reject the New Testament. Don't contribute to these charlatans' ministries. Don't watch them on TV unless you're doing a little bit of apologetic work. (laughs) These ones that that promise this are promising you the exact thing that James condemns in this passage. Do you want to be condemned? Then sow a seed of faith. Now, no one's going to say that, but that's exactly what they're doing. Now, we have a better gospel. We find in the gospel alone that there's good news for the wicked oppressors. Now, James does not offer them this in this passage for reasons that he decided when he wrote this and that God inspired him to do. But there is hope for the wicked oppressor. There is hope for Zacchaeus. And that hope starts with the idea that we all have sinful hearts and we all need to be saved. And so there is good news. There's good news that even though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and even though the wages of sin is death, and even though Solomon told us 3,000 years ago there is no one who does not sin, the gospel is good news precisely because it acknowledges that. Yeah, you're sin. You're a sinner. You deserve death and hell. Guess what? The good news is you don't have to get it. Jesus Christ came down from heaven. He died on a cross. In our place, for our sin, taking all of the wrath that was due me for my wickedness and sin against God, and he put it on Jesus' shoulders. That's why Jesus paid it all. All of it. Now, if we believe that, then what we have to do is place our trust in Jesus. Not work hard to earn God's favor. To trust God, and then because God loves us and has given us grace, now we can live for him. We can be generous with our stuff because God has been more than generous to us. we just sang of the wrath of God being satisfied in Christ alone, and that 's the hope for the poor and the rich alike. let's pray, Father, we thank you for this passage. we thank you for the warning that has given to us we We pray now for those in this congregation who are bosses, who are managers, that they would consider the implications of this. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would be generous with what you have given to us. That we would give away what was never ours to begin with. That we would be wise in our saving, wise in our giving, wise in our spending. That we would understand that there is more to life than stuff and the accumulation of things that are just going to burn anyway. So help us to go from this place and understand that we have been given a great gift and that for any of the wealth you allow us to have, that it is from you, it is for you, and we can spend it, save it, and give it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.